Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A lot of talk about climate, about U.S.-China relations, about the big banks. But the action still is in Gaza as Israel presses ahead. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week's special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard about U.S. jobs numbers and more. I still think the market is a bit overpricing how much easing the Fed's going to decide it can prudently undertake. Honeywell CEO Vimal Kapoor on his latest acquisition and how it fits into his overall business model. So it fits right in the heart of our building automation business and uh, prepares it for higher growth rate in the future. And Bob Diamond of Atlas Merchant Capital on the big bank's big appearance on Capitol Hill. Wall Street watched this week as those 80,000 delegates continued their COP28 meetings in Dubai, with U.S. Special Envoy John Kerry turning up the rhetorical heat. The best scientists in the world are saying what we face now is alarming, terrifying. While Chinese officials reacted badly to Commerce Secretary Raimondo saying it poses a risk to the United States, even as Trade Representative Catherine Tai talked in terms of balance. The lessons that we've learned from the past seven years on trade mean that uh, we can't ever ignore the domestic political consequences of what we're doing in trade. There was a lot of talk in front of the Senate Banking Committee this week as CEOs made their case that ramping up reserve requirements would not be good for the economy. The most likely result of increasing the costs of banks to offer a variety of products 
is that it would move more activity into the less regulated non-bank sector, which carries its own risk for consumers and the stability of the financial system. The place where there was much more than just talk was once again in Gaza, as Israeli forces renewed their offensive, spreading into southern areas and urging civilians to flee again. The real question is, how do you, on the one hand, allow a sovereign nation like Israel to go after terrorist targets, while on the other hand, have them do so in a way that minimizes the harm to civilians. And Israel was very much the subject on Capitol Hill when the presidents of Harvard, Penn, and MIT were summoned to address the rise of anti-Semitism. I have sought to confront hate while preserving free expression. This is difficult work. And I know that I have not always gotten it right. And then on Friday, we got the U.S. jobs numbers, showing once again that the labor market is stronger than people thought, as the U.S. added another 199,000 jobs in November, taking the unemployment rate down to 3.7%, while wage growth accelerated. And here to take us through these employment numbers for this week, we welcome our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, more jobs were created than expected, and unemployment was lower than expected. How do you interpret them? David, these were good numbers. They showed an economy that, at least uh, as of November, was still looking uh, pretty robust. Some of the greatest fears that the economy was turning over certainly look to have been falsified uh, by this uh, number. The fact that average hourly earnings were running above, running at four tenths of a percent, a bit more than was expected, reinforces my sense that people need to be careful about declaring the war against inflation as having been won. They need to be nervous about uh, what could happen from supply shocks, from other adverse developments. But I read these as a pretty favorable uh, number. They certainly make a soft landing look more in play, although I certainly think it would be a mistake uh, to treat a soft landing as something we can take for granted or be confident about. What do they say to the Fed, do you think, Larry? Because on the one hand, you say, boy, this is a pretty robust labor economy. We don't need to cut uh, too soon. And people were expecting some cuts. And as you say, on inflation, there are some indications inflation is ticking back up. We have an Atlanta Fed that says that. And they had the Umish uh, consumer uh, in, uh, sentiment this week indicated that it really dropped the consumer expectations that for inflation for one year out. Look, I think the Fed's got to be very careful. Uh, Progress has been made about against inflation, but they've got to make sure that it keeps being made, and they've got to make sure that once it's made, it's entrenched and locked in. And I think this will make it easier uh, for them uh, to do that. They've got a very tricky problem uh, at uh, the Fed, because whenever people conclude that uh, it's looking good, that we're not going to need more rate increases. Um, they long rates come way down, and the stock market has a tendency to go up, and that then undoes some of the tightening that they have already put in place. So I think it's very hard to know 
what's going to happen. I still think the market is a bit overpricing how much easing the Fed's going to decide it can prudently undertake. But those issues are very much at the margin, unlike the situation we had a couple years ago, where it seemed to me the Fed was very far, very far off. So I think the Fed's in broadly the right place of watchful uh, waiting. But the moment they turn or announce they're going to turn is going to be a seismic moment. And for that reason, they probably need to be very deliberative and careful about getting to that point and waiting until they see some overwhelming evidence of inflation being locked in low or see some real evidence of the economy turning over. And I don't think we have either of those at this point. Uh, Larry, let's turn to something that's very much in the news once again this week, and you have spoken out about it, and that is the rise of anti-Semitism, at least on some college campuses. We had the three university presidents go down and appear in Congress from your own Harvard, as well as MIT and Penn. And if they meant to put an end to this, uh, they certainly did not succeed as of right now. It looks like if anything got to be more so. But this is one of my questions. You, you ran Harvard. You were a president there, but you also were at very senior levels in the, in the government. When things start to go off the rails, when you start to lose control of the narrative, how do you get it back? Because we have everybody now wanting to run universities for the college presidents, whether it's Congress or whether they're contributors or whatever. How do you regain control of the narrative? I think this is as difficult a moment for elite higher education as any moment since the Vietnam War period, perhaps uh, more difficult. I think everybody needs to take a bit of a deep breath. I've had considerable sympathy with uh, some of the things that have been saying, said by both uh, people in the government and uh, by some of the billionaires, some of the donors uh, to these universities. But even when the concerns are warranted, it's very important for us to remember that if universities start being run by politicians or by small groups of large donors, that's going to be a very problematic thing over time uh, for the American university system, which is a huge source of strength uh, for our country. That said, David, um, we have to recognize that there's been a double standard in how incidents of racism have been regarded in the past, incidents of what people call microaggressions, uh, incidents of things that make people feel hurt or uh, sensitive have been regarded in the past, and the way things that are abhorrent to the sensibilities of so many of us have uh, been regarded in the last several months. And that double standard, which in different ways has been present on many campuses, creates an extremely difficult situation. I do not side with those who believe that the answer 
is simply to ratchet up the protections and the condemnations of speech which is uh, offensive to include uh, Jewish students more fully in what has happened uh, in the past. Larry, really food for thought. Thank you so much. That's our special contributor here on Wall Street. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. Coming up, we take a look at the weekend markets with Aaron Brown of PIMCO. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Stocks had another good week, helped by those jobs numbers with the S&P 500 up for the sixth straight week, ending at 46.04. That is well above the median estimate of the Bloomberg Elves for the end of this year and, for that matter, for the end of next year as well. The Nasdaq was up seven-tenths of a percent, while bonds had an up-and-down week. But in the end, the yield on the 10-year added a bit over three basis points to finish at 4.23. To interpret all these markets for us, we welcome back now Erin Brown. She's PIMCO Multi-Asset Strategies Portfolio Manager. Aaron, great to have you back with us. So if we start with the jobs numbers, the other economic data we got this week. How did the markets react to it? So I think that the markets actually behaved pretty rationally. We had a significant rally into the end of November, both across equity markets as well as bond markets. And I think probably the bond market got a little bit ahead of itself going into today's number. You know, keep in mind that Prior to today, the market was pricing in about 127 basis points of interest rate cuts next year, which is a really aggressive interest rate cutting cycle that had been priced in, you know, particularly against the backdrop of still elevated inflation, wage growth north of 4%, and a pretty healthy economy. And so what you saw today, I think, was just some of that optimism of rate cuts being priced out of the market. What's interesting is it didn't really hurt the equity markets. Equity still you know, rallied into the end of the day, did quite well. But the market really is pricing in a pretty soft landing across both equity and bond markets. And I, and I think just some of that enthusiasm was priced out of the bond market, but still a very healthy environment, a healthy macro back backdrop for stocks. Aaron, we're well into December now. It's to start, time to start thinking about 2024. It's not too early. Uh, what are you projecting for 2024? And as you talk about those rate cuts, I, it always strikes me, the only reason they cut rates is if maybe things are not going so well in the economy. So I'm not sure if we should wish for that. Well, there's other reasons why the Fed would, would price in rate cuts. And, and the reason for that is right now rates are quite restrictive. You know, the rates are probably 200 basis points over the neutral rate. And that was really necessary given the very elevated levels of inflation. But we're starting to see inflation come down. And as we see inflation normalize, the Fed may want to take out some of that restrictiveness, even absent a recession. So that we could still see rate cuts in a healthy manner macro environment as long as inflation is lower than where it is today. What was a little bit concerning about the jobs number is we saw wage growth increase again and it's you know elevated above 4%. 
the Fed is probably going to have difficulty cutting rates with inflation, wage inflation above 3%. So we need to see that, mar that really move lower in order to f be in the Fed's comfort level overall to start cutting rates. I think next year we're going to continue to see a gradually slowing economic environment that could stagnate. But right now, at least I'm not pricing in a recession for next year, but I do expect a, a slow growth environment in the U.S. with the potential for recession risk, particularly outside of the U.S., that you know could open the door for rate cuts towards the end of next year, um, but it's unlikely that we're going to see rate cuts in the first quarter, particularly after today's payroll print. Aaron, I know your job is really monitoring that balance between equities on the one hand and bonds on the other. Uh, now bonds are giving you some real returns. I mean, so you're getting some real money. But what does that mean about your investment portfolio as you go into 2024? So I think bonds are in a really unique sweet spot, right, for investors. Typically, there's three things that you look for in bonds, and I call it the trifecta of bonds. The first is yield, and you want real yield from bonds. If you look at a core U.S. bond portfolio today, it's yielding 4.8% on a real basis, so absent inflation. If you subtract out inflation, that's a positive real return from your fixed income portfolio. That's really elevated versus where we've seen during very slow growth environments, and certainly very elevated versus the yield that you are getting from any type of bond portfolio over the last decade or so. The second is the potential for capital appreciation. And just given the really rapid sell-off um, and the extent of the sell-off that we saw both in 2022 and 2023 um, with across you know, fixed income portfolios, I think you could see uh, the potential for real capital return as well next year as bonds rally as a continuation of what we saw over the last month. Um, and then the third is diversification. And we've seen you know, stock bond correlation go back to uh, inversely correlated with one another, which means that when bonds sell off, uh, stocks rally, and when stocks sell off, bonds rally. And that's really important from a diversification perspective for most investors' um, asset mix and their core asset allocation uh, across their portfolios. And so you're now getting all three benefits from bonds, whereas you know, two years ago, you're really only getting, you know, potential for diversification, which failed. So I, I think bonds are in a real sweet spot next year for investors. The COVID-19 pandemic has triggered some big changes in investment patterns and supply chains around the world. To take us through what his industrial company is doing, we welcome now the CEO of Honeywell, his Vimal Kapoor. So Vimal, thank you so much for being with us. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me, David, and it's a pleasure to be here. A lot of talk about supply chains. Give us a sense from Honeywell's perspective, what has changed, if anything, since the pandemic? Everything, I would say. <laughs> I mean, the, it's been a biggest disruption in our business for the last two years. It started with the disruption in electronics, which we all well aware, and you don't get chips, you don't get parts, and that was really, I would say, about two years back. That's mostly healed for most part. What's still left behind for us? Uh, aerospace is the largest segment for Honeywell. Uh, and then they, there, the healing is yet to happen completely. We are in a midway, and the constraint there is tier three, tier four suppliers. They uh, moved on with a lot of people during COVID, and when the capacity came back, rebuilding the capacity of the people has been a big challenge because these are certified skills, uh, not too easy to hire people, and that's the state we are in. So uh, electronics mostly healed. 
on the mechanical side, products in aerospace, more in the midway, but we're making progress every week, every month, and continue to produce more. Other thing I must bring in if it changed is uh, how we think about insourcing versus outsourcing. Mm. That was, uh, I would say, uh, we generally practice the strategy of local for local, so produce for North America and North America, Europe for Europe, and Asia for Asia. So for us, there was not a, not a lot of moves, but uh, when should you outsource and when you should not outsource? Because one thing we learned was that when we control the supply chain, we healed quickly. And when it was outsourced more, we healed slower. And that kind of also raising the question on how should we reconfigure on the things we do outsource, specifically electronic side, and should that not be done by us to drive more control and more execution? Phil, so what about uh, geography? Uh, there's been a lot of talk with other companies mm -hmm. about uh, friend sourcing yes. and onshoring, things like that. Uh, has that been a shift for you? Is most of your supply chain within the United States? Have you, have you taken it to other countries that we would call them so-called so friend shoring? So we uh, always had a strategy of local for local and our North America supply chain always supported in US and, and Mexico. Uh, and Europe was in Europe and Asia was primarily China. So for us, uh, what's changed is certainly uh, Mexico has become more important. Uh, we always had a great presence there. So probably we are doing some insourcing type of work in Mexico, considering that to do moving forward. Uh, but we see a lot of our customers moving into uh, French shoring. We see activity in ASEAN countries like in Vietnam, Malaysia, we see a lot of activity in Poland, we see activity in Turkey, uh, Mexico is probably top of the charts there. So clearly people are making decisions to redo their businesses to align more with, with the French shoring. Thank you so much. That is Vimal Kapoor, he is the Honeywell CEO. Coming up, the big bank's statement of their case to the Senate Banking Committee on Wednesday. We'll go through it with Bob Diamond of Atlas Capital Management. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The CEOs of the major banks appeared before the Senate Banking Committee this week, and most of the discussion was about the proposed regulations increasing reserve requirements as part of that move to Basel III requirements. To give us an expert view on the merits of the complaints we heard this week, welcome now Bob Diamond. He's founder and CEO of Atlas Merchant Capital. Bob, great to have you back on Wall Street Week. So as I say, listening to some of those CEOs, they're not too happy with this idea about these reserves. Are they right? Are they, is it really going to suppress lending? Is it really going to hurt the economy? Well, listen, of course the bank CEOs are not going to be um, looking for higher capital levels. Um, I think the banks are doing pretty well right now. You know, the mantra that I used in 2008, David, was kind of how do we keep, how do we keep banks safe and sound while also driving jobs and economic growth? And it would be hard to say that we're not doing a pretty good job on both of those right now. I think the banks are safer and sounder than they've been since 2008. And I think on the other hand, people are pretty pleased with um, economic growth, really pleased with job creation in the U.S. So I think one of the things they're saying is there's some of balance. Factually, if you raise those capital levels, they are going to have lower ROE. And factually, there'll be less capital for lending. 
Um, so I think what they said is correct. I think the balance you have to put it is, is one of safety and soundness. Well, and safety and soundness, has it gotten more important uh, to have make sure that yeah. these really big banks, the really big money center banks, are safe? Because there was a time we said we don't want to have too big yeah. to fail. I think we're past that point, at least with that handful of big banks. Yeah. I'm not sure we can handle if they failed. Well, I think that's a very good point. And if you go back to 2008, both Citi and Bank of America, two of the biggest four banks in the U.S., were pretty much insolvent without the TARP program. So the Fed and the Treasury came up with a program to put equity in the banks, and they're doing great today. But the truth is the big four banks, J.P. Morgan, B of A, Wells Fargo, Citi, today versus 2008 are bigger, more concentrated, closer to government, more like utilities or an oligopoly at that level. And so if there was a mistake, if there was a systemic failure, um, it would be a problem. Well, talk about the banking system overall. Are we headed to a world where we really have a handful of mega banks and then presumably a lot of small community banks yeah. to handle local things? And we really are putting a lot of pressure on the middle, the so-called regional banks. Well, I, this is why we have been talking so much in Atlas Merchant Capital about the opportunities in regional community specialist banking. You know, we have over 4,000 banks in this country. We're very, very unique in that way. And I think the, the benefit that that has to our economy, the diversification of lending, particularly the lending to specialist companies, middle market companies, but we also have a very diverse financial services industry outside of the banks. So, you know, we own three um, middle market M&A advisory platforms or advisory platforms for middle market companies in the U.S. Um, they serve small businesses and family-owned businesses in a way that the large mega banks just can't afford to serve them. And, and, and um, all of that benefits the financial services industry. So. We're very positive on the regional banks and the community banks, and we think that there's clearly a spot for them. Um, the regional banks in 2023 have come under a lot of stress. Starting with SVB, we had those failures. There was a lot of uh, concern about them. They're yeah. caught in between. And they have a lot of the costs, particularly regulatory and other costs, that the huge banks have, but they can't distribute it quite as broadly. Should we be promoting, encouraging, allowing more consolidation at that rank? I think it's going to happen fairly naturally. And, you know, to your point, David, they got hit with, you know, a triple whammy um, with interest rates moving up quickly. The mark-to-market portfolio or, or the treasury portfolio that was not mark-to-market got hit for every bank. Um, I think loans as a percentage of assets are higher in regional and community banks, and so there's been some concern there. And lastly, and I think it's not, it's not really um, a topic as much as it should be, is the higher regulatory costs. And post-SVB and First Republic, um, the impact of, of uh, regulation and inspection on the smaller community banks is just much greater than it would be on the larger banks. As you say, Bob, there's increased regulatory costs, and those get distributed. They don't ramp up or ramp down. They're not scalable. But what about tech costs as well? We're looking at, we're on the edge of AI, generative AI, and how that's going to probably transform banking. Uh, again, that's one thing for a city or a Bank of America or a J.P. Morgan to afford it. It's another thing for some of these smaller banks to afford it. I think it's going to be a huge advantage for them. I think, oh, really? I think the technology of processing and back office, and those are big, big challenges for the smaller banks, but I think their, their access to uh, AR, AI excuse me, uh, will be a huge boost for them. So I think one of the things that we're pretty excited about going forward is that that'll be a pr pretty positive impact. But back to your point, David, 
4,000 banks today. Some of the smaller ones are really, really good banks, but they're struggling to get their return on equity up. So we think some of the stronger ones are ripe for investment, and that investment can be to help uh, increase capital levels, but can also be to give them the capital to acquire some of the smaller banks. Bob, one more point about those hearings. We heard a fair amount of concern expressed by the CEOs that as you increase some of the regulatory requirements, you're driving money out of the regulated bank banking system. Yep. You're driving into private credit, into some of the non-bank banks. Is that a real issue? Is it a real problem? Should we be concerned about it? Of course you want to be concerned about everything in financial services, but I think one of the great attributes of the financial services industry in the U.S. and its impact in the economy is the diversification. So the amount of private credit is actually quite a small percentage relative to all credit from the banking uh, uh, system, um, but it's venture funds, it's hedge funds. It's credit opportunity funds, it's regional banks, it's community banks, it's M&A advisory platforms for middle market companies. No other country has as diverse and strong and, and uh, uh, diversified financial services industry as we have. I think it's one of our great strengths. So um, does it need to be regulated? Of course. But is it a real positive for our economy that, that not all of this activity is happening in four banks as it is in Canada? in many of the European countries. I think it's a real positive. But for taking the point of view of the large banks, just for a moment here, is there a risk of the small, the private, private credit facilities cherry picking? It may not be big in the overall course of things, but they may get the most lucrative. It's competition. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Of course, the private credit platforms are going to look for the best pieces uh, of the lending um, uh, sector. Um, so I think that competition will be very good. Is there systemic risk is the big issue from a regulator's point of view? And that's what we really care about is the yeah. overall system. Uh, is there systemic risk because we don't really know what's in a lot of the private credit? Listen, one of the things that it's been hard for anyone to think about since 2008 is that failure is okay. Hmm. Too big to fail is talking about systemic risk uh, for the economy. So many of these private credit platforms have um, sovereign wealth funds investing in them. So the, the risk is well, well diversified. And I think if the Fed and the Treasury felt that there was systemic risk on the private capital platforms, they should take action. But I don't see any evidence that failure in private credit right now is going to create systemic risk. Historically, private credit was available to sort of the more wealthy, the more sophisticated investors of various sorts. But we've seen, certainly in private equity, a move into retail, a ways of figuring out retail to participate. Yeah. Is that happening in private credit, and is that pose a risk for just a mom and pop putting their money, their savings into this? Uh, I'm not as close to some of the private equity firms, but I would expect they're looking more and more at retail as well. Um, so um, again, it's the diversification and it's the question of is there, is there systemic risk. So to make the banking system even stronger than it is today, you said it's pretty good shape. What would you do? Well, listen, <clears throat> I think what um, Michael Barr is looking at as the vice chair in terms of the capital levels is appropriate given that the banks are um, larger, more concentrated, uh, and carry a larger and larger percentage of the deposit. So at some point, you know, you and I have talked about this, is, is it four large banks at the expense of a couple thousand uh, banks? I'd like to see the capital levels a little bit less onerous at the smaller community banks and the regulatory costs a little bit less onerous there and give them a chance to continue to grow and get their ROE up. Bob, it's always such a treat to have you on Wall Street Week. Thank you so much for coming in. That is Bob Diamond of Atlas Merchant Capital.
Coming up, enough with the fountain of youth. Get ready for a fountain of age, brought to you compliments of your friendly generative AI. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Finally, one more thought. Mark Twain taught us that age is an issue of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. But let's be frank, we do mind, and yes, it does matter. After all, didn't Ponce de Leon spend years back in the 16th century looking for that lost fountain of youth? And these days, it sometimes seems as though we're surrounded by people who could use a drink from that fountain of youth, starting with many of our politicians. People do believe that our elected leaders are just too old, and those same elected leaders are really reluctant to give up that power. Which makes it all the harder for the young to wait for their turn in the big leagues. But it turns out there are at least some places where that wait is getting shorter rather than getting longer. Like tech, for example, where Mark Zuckerberg became a billionaire at 23. This guy's probably smiling big so, today. Yes, big smile on his face. His wealth went up by $1.6 billion just in one day, just yesterday. Just in one day. And Evan Spiegel made it by 25. Sam Bankman-Fried was a billionaire briefly when he was 29, but I'm not sure that that one still counts. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. This kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time. Or in sports, we have young baseball players racing their way through the minors like never before, according to sports site Defector. Like Jackson Holiday, moved up by the Orioles to triple-A ball only a year out of high school, aided by high-tech applied to his training. Though Detroit Tigers fans like me might recall that our Al Kaline first played in the majors at 18, long before we used all those newfangled computers. Which takes us to artificial intelligence. Nobel Prize winner Michael Spence told us that the best use of AI may well be to augment what we do rather than replace it. Our best guess is that generative AI is mainly, not exclusively, but mainly going to turn out to be a powerful digital assistant. And some professions are already using this new digital assistant to advance the careers of their junior talent faster than ever before. This week, Bloomberg reported that new graduates hired at KPMG are using artificial intelligence tools to do tax works that used to require at least three or four years of experience. And law firm McFarland's has junior lawyers working with AI to interpret complex legal documents that the partners wouldn't let us go near back when I was starting out. All of which may mean those accountants and those lawyers will get their coveted partnerships much earlier than we used to. So it turns out that 450 years after Ponce de Leon traipsed around Florida looking for that fountain of youth, we have found the opposite. Artificial intelligence that lets us grow old earlier. Call it maybe the fountain of age. Now the question is whether this will spread from lawyers to doctors. Stanford Medical School Dean Lloyd Miner says they're already well into integrating AI into medicine. There will be less emphasis on memorization, more emphasis, I think, on truly understanding, and in particular, understanding what these models are doing and how they can be responsibly deployed and trained. So we may be just around the corner from bringing to the world what 30 years ago TV only imagined in Doogie Hauser, who graduated from med school at 14 and was practicing medicine at 16. Today's 16th birthday, 
getting his license would just be the most perfect present. You want to go to jail? No, you'll be going to jail for criminal negligence. Who is this kid? That's my son, the doctor. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.